What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm Inc. Executive Editor Diana Ransom, and you are listening to Inc. Uncensored. Today's episode, Control Freaks. With founders, we usually only get to see the view from outside as they take a new idea and build it into a hopefully thriving business. There's a typical narrative, a savvy, creative founder or co-founders, a strong work ethic, and the freedom to control your own enterprise. But behind the scenes, how much control do founders really have? Is it possible to have too much control? And when is it necessary to let go? How do founders share responsibilities and decision-making power? We had the pleasure of chatting with two founders with unique perspectives on the journey from startup to successful company to selling the brand and leaving for a new project. I'm Christine Barbrick. I'm one of the co-founders of Refinery29, which we founded in 2005, and I'm a writer. And I also have a newsletter called A Tiny Apartment on Substack. Christine Barbaric's expertise in the magazine and fashion worlds helped her shape Refinery29 into an entertaining and insightful media company that spoke to young women in a way that traditional magazines hadn't. But she also had three co-founders, which meant navigating control and power in unforeseen ways. Our second founder also had a partner in her company, her brother. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, founder of Rebecca Minkoff and co-founder of Female Founder Collective. Rebecca's years of building a company with her sibling, plus the eventual sale of her brand, required her to compromise while still controlling the image and direction of the company that bore her own name. I started our conversation by asking Rebecca what it was like working with her brother. Oh, yes. We're famous for talking about our clashes. I think the first couple of years, we were both minding our own business with our own areas because it was so intense and we were growing so quickly. And then we each began to pop our head out and I'd be like, why didn't this bill get paid? And he'd be like, I think you should add this to the collection. And that's when we started seeing sparks fly. But I think the thing that really helped us is we hired a business mediator. Hmm. And we would come together once a year, usually around Christmas time, and just get it all out and have this person kind of help us smooth out all the rough edges. We'd literally write down how we're going to treat each other the next year. It's your version of Festivus, isn't it? It is. (laughs) It was like couples therapy, but for, you know, co-founders. And we did it every year because inevitably there'd be something. And so I think, you know, when we sold the company, we had a moment that was extraordinarily tough. And then we apologized to each other for how we treated each other. (laughs) All the years we hugged, we cried. And now we're just brother-sister, which is really nice. I I would be in prison. Yeah. I have (laughs) have two older brothers and could never imagine starting anything with them. I have one brother who wants to buy property with me right now. And I'm like, yeah, maybe not. So more power to you. Christine, let's move on to you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how uh, Refinery was structured. You had three additional co-founders who did what? So there were four of us. And, you know, I think the dynamic of having four founders sounds extremely complicated. And I think at moments it was. 
But what was really important to remember, and I think sometimes only we remember this because we were back there, but 2004, 2005 was a very different time. I mean, when I tell people that Twitter wasn't around and that there were very few newsletters, it's like blogs had just emerged, people weren't selling things on the internet, people weren't relying on their phones as much, and there was a lot to prove. And I think not just within our particular brand and our particular space, but that the internet was going to fulfill all these expectations that people had for, you know, changing the world. So very clearly from the beginning, I think we were all really aware of each other's lanes. Um, There was some initial overlap that we had some tension around and we worked through it. But once we actually had our spaces, it got much easier Your role mainly was in creative and editorial, correct? Did you have any regrets about sort of the scope of your role? I think that's an interesting question. And I think that this comes with maturity and experience. And, you know, hindsight is always 20-20. It's like feeling like I might have had a really important opinion about UX or product design. And you know what? Maybe I didn't. Maybe my opinion there was not as useful as maybe in the moment that I thought it was. So you really do have to separate the ego from what the end game is and like what's going to get you the best result. Quick story. Our regular audience knows this about me. I describe myself as a failed founder of a, a wellness product immediately prior to the pandemic, which could have been entirely different. But really what I was, was I was a failed co-founder. I could not get along with my co-founder. And in fact, two weeks prior to my leaving the company, we had won a global innovation day at Hilton Hotels, right? Which had the promise of our product being in 30,000 hotel rooms. And, And yet I knew despite that win that there was just no way we could be successful. I think a therapist told me very early on that with couples therapy, they both know what a red flag is like from the very beginning. And a lot of a relationship is denying that it's there or sort of pretending that you can, you know, deal with it in a way that maybe you can't. And I think that that's the same for co-founders. I think we always know what the pain points are going to be, but, you know, there is a certain kind of, I don't mean to get woo-woo here, but there's a certain kind of fate attached to all of this. It's like this company, and in our case, Refinery29 needed all four of us. And there were two of us in particular, me and one of my other co-founders, and we had a pretty historic battle that was ongoing. And sometimes it was more on him, sometimes it was more on me. We made it to the finish line, you know, when we sold our company, but it was really tough. You mentioned something earlier. When things start to get successful and people start recognizing you for doing something that is rare and important and in demand, it's like then the pressure really starts to escalate and then people start to really feel like they're being watched or surveilled about how good they're doing if they're driving results if they're hiring the right people. Every decision matters so much. And I'm sure every founder that's either considering starting a company or is in the middle of it or at the end of it or rebranding completely, it's just a reality of this life. And I think that the more you can kind of adapt to it and surrender to it a little bit, because you do learn a lot about yourself in that process. And I think Again, it's about removing your own sense of self-importance and trying to just do 
a good fucking job. I think that applies to some founders and not all of the folks I who start businesses have the ego that allows them to step down like that, right? Rebecca, it makes me want to ask, what was the trigger for you and your brother to sort of seek out that business coach? Did you recognize it yourself? Did someone else suggest it? So for a very long time, we were both calling my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and at a certain point, he said, <laughs> I love you both very much, but I'm really tired of listening to you guys and I can't be in the middle of this. And so he said, you guys should call someone that's not family, basically, mm -hmm. and get them on speed dial. And so we, we were able through our network to find someone. And just, you know, I think it's important that if you do have a co-founder, whether they're related to you, married to you, or your best friend or not, is to have multiple times a year where you're checking in, what do you need and want from me? And you do have to remove your ego for that, right? To ask someone. Because, you know, I'll never forget when I had my first kid, I just planned to leave the office at six, you know, and my brother loves to work late. But he began to resent me for going home. And mm -hmm. I said, well, that's how it is now. I'm going home at six to be with my child. And so that caused a lot of friction. Like, he's like, you're not as in it as I am. And I'm like, of course I'm not. <laughs> you know, so it's like we should have had a check-in then. You know, we should have had a check-in at all these different touch points instead of letting it build up and explode like it would sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. I think you need to have a reflection from somebody other than your co-founder because that feels too raw sometimes. So having someone who's sort of an outside sort of observer seeing how you interact, that can be helpful, I imagine, to pointing out that, Maybe you're not doing everything that you should be doing, or maybe you're, you know, maybe you're part of the problem. I wanted to ask you about the sort of the concept of being a control freak, and if there's a reason to be a control freak when you're an entrepreneur. I think that calling someone a control freak is sort of giving the idea of wanting to control, especially in our sense as founders, our business, right? We should be able to feel freedom in wanting to control the outcome when my name's on the door, her passion and ideation and creativity is on the door. Mm -hmm. I think you can take it to a bad place, but I think in the beginning you absolutely have to control everything because no one's going to care about it as much as you. No one's going to be not sleeping in the middle of the night and working nights and weekends. And there is a point with which you can start to give control, but then you have to make sure that the person you handed the baton to actually is executing it correctly. And there have been plenty of times where you passed the baton and it was great, and then plenty where it was a fucking nightmare. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, you give up control and you're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? So I think it's a I think for founders especially, I think you should be in as control as you need to be. What's the situation where you felt like you needed to lean in versus pull back, if you can recall? So I was about to go on mat leave, and I had felt truly burned out and just like, I'm tired. Please just take this area of the business. And we had hired someone we thought was had a doctorate, was smart, said all the right things, and she got in there. And I knew red flag two weeks in postpartum when she wanted to let go of my head of PR, who was incredible, and then wanted to cut funding on our influencer program and our social media and change the narrative. And it wasn't about Rebecca Minkoff. It was we. And I was like, who's we, right? People are coming to this brand because they're identifying with a person. And then I got back from Matt Lee, and her first words to me were, my job would be easier if you didn't exist. And I wow. was like, cool. Well, <laughs> well, I've definitely lost control of this situation, haven't I? Um, and it took 
nine months to get her out and to convince someone who shall not be named, you know, that the brainwashing needed to undo itself and that this person was harming the organization. And that felt incredibly out of control in a situation where someone's like, well, your name's on the door. Why can't you fire her? I'm like, well, it's so complicated that I can't fire her, but Mm. I can't. How did you learn from that experience and, you know, sort of build in kind of restrictions on hiring people? So I think that the biggest lesson I learned was following that I was just going through my own self-doubt, right? I've been doing this for so long. Maybe she knows better. Maybe she knows more than me. And I will never not trust my gut. I'd rather go down in flames trusting my gut than go through the self-deprecation, self-doubt that I went through. So now I have a red like flag alert for those types of people, and I won't let them near me or the team. But you really have to trust what you know is right as a founder. You know, it's your business. You started it. And obviously, I know what I don't know. So I lean on experts in those arenas. But I will never allow someone to come in and alienate an organization, especially away from me. So, Christine, you also have, um, you know, obviously with four different co-founders, you had differing levels of control within Mm -hmm. your organization. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think in my situation, it was very much a micro approach to control and a macro approach to control. And I think on the micro level, because I'm an editor by trade and a writer, I think in the very beginning, as Refinery was finding its voice and and its footing and people began to know it for a certain energy and a certain offering, I was extremely annoying, I would say. (laughs) I'm I'm sure it was annoying how involved in stories I was, particularly packaging, because knowing in those early days about what performed and how to actually get people to open newsletters was a big part of it. It wasn't just about like doing these very abstract, you know, moody headlines or cover lines in a magazine where it doesn't matter. It's like we're not looking for a metric to measure whether or not it was successful, but you can see all that in real time. So there's like a consequence to not doing it as well as you can. And it's also a skill that you have to learn and we were all learning it together. And it sucked, you know, we would A-B test like newsletters and I would always know when a newsletter wasn't going to go well and I would always, you know, sort of tweak the B test and then you'll see like three hours later that it did better. Sometimes it didn't, but most of the time it did. And I called somebody yesterday knowing that was one of the questions or at least that was an area we were going into, a former colleague and employee at Refinery in my department. And I asked, was I a control freak? And he said, yes, like unequivocally, (laughs) yes, you were. He said, but... Your intention was, and people knew this, was to make the piece better. Like, my name wasn't on it. I mean, obviously, it was part of our organization. But I think that sometimes when there's a lot of freedom in digital, people really feel a lot of creative agency. And that's beautiful. That is a huge part of what makes this space so inspiring and so exciting because there is so much sense of possibility moment to moment to moment. We can move quicker on things. But to that sense, it's like it still needs strategy. It still needs structure. It still needs a checks and balances to make sure because it's like making a cake. It's like you can't make a cake with one ingredient. It has to like, and it takes time, you know, it's like good storytelling. It sometimes takes a few passes, you know. Sometimes you can get something, you know, up quick if it's something's, you know, there's breaking news and you need to like get there. But on the macro side, right? you had asked earlier, was there a point where I lost control? And I did, you know, with the scale argument about how fast we grew. Right. Uh, Refinery29 was on the Inc. 5,000 five years in a row, I believe. Yes. And how we grew, you know, what there, you know, how that growth was generated. And 
I didn't agree with it. I went along with it and I needed to because it made sense for how we had promised we were going to grow. So you wanted a more organic approach to growth? I think because I am a control freak when it comes to storytelling and content, which is like, so it's not a big surprise that I have a newsletter now. Um, And that's exactly where Refinery started because I feel a certain preciousness sometimes about storytelling. But unfortunately, I do blame the media to a sense. It's like, you know, you're in this pressure cooker around like who's going to be the next one, who's going to be the next one. And it's like you see the consequences now in these like docuseries about WeWork or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, the consequences of scaling at any cost, even if you have to fake it, because it's like the story's out there, you know, you can't walk it back. And that is something I think about a lot. You know, it's the pressure of this industry and the sort of celebrity building of these founders. So that story becomes more important than the story inside. And I think that causes a lot of tension, you know, internally and externally. And then you start the whole SEO thing. It removes that instinct that we have as storytellers. Like, I'm interested in this idea. Like, maybe I want to actually explore that. Like, there was a moment when I sent this writer to Paris because Scaparelli was doing some really interesting things. I found the budget for it. It wasn't something we had a lot of budget for. Sent him to Paris, reported out this amazing story about Scaparelli and how the fact that what is a couture brand, you know? I felt like our readers really needed to hear that. It wasn't trending. Nobody cared about it. But I felt like it was going to be a really important evergreen topic. It was like literally six weeks later where that decision, I could have never made that. I could have never made that call because it was not for a scale sort of opportunity and a reach opportunity. SEO is sort of like a department store buyer who has uh, opinions about being a designer, isn't it, (laughs) Rebecca? Oh, I I can tell you about all the department store buyers and their opinions (laughs) and how we listen to them. But I empathize with what Christine said. It is like an SEO thing. You're exactly right. I didn't want to scale in the same way that Christine didn't want to scale because I was watching our independence slip away. And I was watching these buyers come in and say, all right, well, if you want me to buy more, I need it to be green, red, and yellow. And that's it. And that's it. And remove the studs. And And the president we had at the time was like, yep, anything you want. And I would sit there and say, it's not anything they want. This was my idea and vision. She's like, well, do you want you know, to go on vacation or not. (laughs) was literally what I was asked. Do you want to be able to afford a vacation or not? And then when you're making $23,000 a year for a long time, you kind of want to go on vacation eventually. And so then you're like, all right, maybe I'll I'll give here. And then that opens up Pandora's box. So this is like the next step of control or or loss of control. You've both built well-recognized brands. You, to some extent, moved on to other things. I'm mindful of, again, uh, going back to my fashion uh, history, when people like Tommy Hilfiger or Joseph Abood essentially lost the use of their name. I think that's something that Bobby Brown is, is dealing with now in her new startup, Jones Road, right? What is it like to build something that everyone recognizes, but now isn't necessarily yours anymore or yours in the same way it was? It's heartbreaking. It really is. I'm not going to like sugarcoat it. It's like having an ex-boyfriend that's just like riding a bike in front of your house all the time (laughs) that, you know, really like... With a sign. Yeah. (laughs) Like with a horn. And it's just like, you know, always like, oh, him again. And there are so many people that contributed to not just the success of Refinery29, but the spirit and the magic of that company. 
And I will always, always be grateful to them and be really, really proud of it. But three years out from selling the company, I'm I'm still not at a place where I can just readily, really casually, like open up mm-hmm. emails mm-hmm. and and see what's going on because it is a lot like, I don't know about you guys, but my mom used to lose me in the mall all the time. And I used to really give me a lot of anxiety. I'd be like looking around. I think she was trying to lose me, you know, and I would be like looking around all of a sudden and I would realize I couldn't find her. And that's kind of how it feels. It feels like I can't like I sometimes have those like feelings where I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, my God, where's my company? You know, and it's gone. And I still have, despite Vice's, you know, challenges right now, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of hope that it will find a new chapter and a new footing. I think it's simpler than just a business. It becomes like such a part of your... And and even if you're going home at six o'clock, Rebecca, it doesn't mean you're not still thinking thinking about about it. it. In my situation, we sold the company, but I'm still there. I still have the exact same job that I had. I got to keep my whole team. I think... Where it gets hard is if a decision was made pre-purchase, I could yell and scream and have my tantrums and disagree, and I would get somewhere. And sometimes now, I have no fear about having the tantrum or yelling and screaming, but sometimes it's like, it's literally a brick wall. And I think my my new ownership, they're fantastic. So this is nothing against them, but they have different business objectives. They have a bigger company. And so sometimes I'm just like, oh, I actually can't change that. Cool. And I think that's what's hard because I could before. You now have maybe sort of given up some control, but you still have influence. Yes. Right? So let's talk about money and what potentially founders get wrong about how much control they exert over the bottom line. Let's just say for a very long time, the first seven years, everything was put back into the business to optimize growth. Then we took in private equity. We sort of said, all right, let's follow the model of exploding the company and put all this money into the company. And I look back and we never at the time, it wasn't a trend to care about the margin. It was just grow, grow, grow. And then that sentiment shifted and it was like, but are you profitable? And so I very much regret not building in the beginning a very profitable company. And yes, we would have grown slower, but I think at the end of the day, like Christine mentioned, we get blindsided by the celebrities on the cover. I've raised a billion. I'm worth blah, 300 million. And then everyone thinks that that's what they have to be. And I think that we should have just focused on the bottom line and cutting costs because it did bite us in the ass later when you're not profitable and investors want to see that for your next round and turning that Titanic around is no easy feat. But in both cases, you were at the mercy. There's no way to win, right? Because if you have to uh, grow fast because that's what investors want, you need to be able to grow fast. If suddenly investment theses shift everywhere and it's about profitability, suddenly it's about profitability. Like you, you, it's, it's a place where you don't have control, I guess, right? In hindsight, you could have said you wanted to do this differently, but you might have not gotten the PE money to begin with. We might have not gotten the PE money, but I think we could have made sure that our margin was a lot healthier or we could have done better analyses, analyses, anal- whatever, yeah. <laughs> that word. Our past president had $20 million worth of inventory at all times on a company that should have had four. 
So it's like those were big mistakes that sucked us dry at times that made it hard. And so I think those were things we could have controlled and should have controlled. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And Christine, in terms of refinery, you know, you all had your own lane, right? So Justin and Philip took on more of the business side. I remember interviewing them for, at Inc., maybe 10 years ago at this point, about their fast growth. And I didn't interview you or Piera. So why is that? Why Ironic, don't why you think? Why weren't we I know. talking about the business? <laughs> To everyone's credit, we didn't have any money in the beginning. I think we were managing like $800. I mean, we were all working 17 jobs, you know, just to keep this going. We didn't raise, you know, really any money for the first three years. But there were boundaries, you know, with each of our roles. And I think that my mistake was not inserting myself in a lot of the decision-making once there was real money coming in and people were interested and were seeing a lot of potential around the content that we were making, which I felt really very directly tied to. And I think that, you know, I don't really want to dwell in regrets, you know, but part of that is, and I do think this can be gendered sometimes. It's like maybe women founders being used in an ornamental way, going to big sales meetings with like huge luxury brands, selling the brand, giving the presentation. But I think when it came to the distribution of it and the decision-making and the wisdom that went into where certain budgets went, I did not have access to that. And I do feel like it was a mistake. I should have pushed for it. I'm sure all of you are somewhat familiar with the executive that left Pinterest and she wrote that open letter about one of the things that she, that really was problematic for her was the meeting after the meeting. We all know about the meeting after the meeting. It's like everybody's around the table, we're making big decisions and then all of a sudden another meeting happens that's like off the record or whatever and that's where the real decisions are made. And I think that in some cases, and I don't think it's planned, I don't think there's anything malicious about it, but I think in a lot of ways that happens and that's control. You know, people like feeling like, "Mm, I didn't really get as much as I wanted out of that. You know, maybe I can actually have, get my two cents in without having this audience, you know, or this, you know, sort of any kind of resistance to it. And those things you know, really can't happen because they can really derail the feeling of everyone feeling like they have like a stake in it. And I lost those battles, you Mm -hmm. know, sometimes. Because then you'd find out later, you're like, that's not what we decided, you know? And it's no one's fault. It is sometimes the organic, you know, pathway of things. Right. I mean, you just basically went from having four co-founders to yet another stakeholder or many stakeholders, and they all have opinions too. So it's, yeah, I can imagine that it's dilutive, right? You had one voice that was really, was a quarter of the strength of the full voice, right? And then next thing you know, you bring in these other stakeholders and that one voice gets tinier and tinier. Yeah, but when you're also 
responsible for the team that is working nights and days when breaking news has happened. I'm sure, you know, you work in that world, you know, there's a lot of times when we have to call people and say, are you on this? Did you see this? So-and-so died, you know, this happened. We need to really be like preparing a statement about this. And that's a lot of pressure, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, work in different parts of the company that are not getting called, Absolutely. you know, not getting those calls. Absolutely. I have a boss here at Inc., the CEO of our, our parent company, and I had a review with her a few months ago, and she said there's too much of a sense of it's Scott's way or the highway, right, here. And in fact, I appreciate why she said that, but I don't think of it as Scott's way or the highway at all. I think of it as Scott trying to interpret for our audience what we should be doing. So so to me, it's not what I want, it's what the audience wants. So my control, I feel, is quite limited by trying to be as responsive to the multitude of people out there, customers, newsletter readers, website visitors, whatever it is. And so I'm just wondering from the two of you who have used audience to great effect over time, to use social media well, like how much do you think about that and how much control does everyone out there have over what you do or think or how you design, Rebecca? So I think everyone has an opinion and everyone now has a platform, right? Everyone is an armchair expert. I think there's a great podcast called that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Dak Shepard, right? So I think that it's tempering that opinion with where are you going to take that feedback and where do you make sure it still has your point of view? So we've done crowdsourcing before that was a thing, voting, whatever, but you're always doing it within a framework that's controlled. So great, you are helping me design the t-shirt. Here are the three graphics you're going to pick or the color, right? You're you're sort of narrowing down what you're already okay with before you're allowing people to weigh in. And I think where it gets out of control is when you become a yes person. Like again, my prior president was a yes person. I'll never forget she came to me. She said a huge retailer wants you to put nerd alert on a computer case. This was many years ago. I was like, absolutely not. We won't do that. And she goes, well, I'm not going to be the one that said, you know, you turned down a six-figure order. And I was like, cool, that's my choice. <laughs> you know, can't we talk to them about a better choice? So I think it's like, here are the guardrails with which you allow an offering or selection. And then you don't compromise as a company or as a brand what you stand for. And you're saying no to opportunity sometimes, but you have to. Otherwise, you just become everything to everyone in that, and then nobody feels like they have a reason to come to you or you're special. I think that there is a sentiment, again, I meet so many young founders, and they feel like everything will be solved by an investment. And I tell them, you are getting more married to these people than your life partner. And that contract is going to say things that have potentially catastrophic effects. So to really know when you're taking money, it's not free. There is a level of control that that these investors or banks want. And to really educate yourself and or get a great lawyer to make sure that what you're agreeing to, you're up for. You know, like my brother's focus became quarterly reports instead of leading the company. How much more could we have done had he not had to focus on a 51-page deck? So, you know, money doesn't solve everything. It can make some things easier, but it can also make things harder. So just be careful when you are taking in those funds for that. Well, and also make sure you work with investors who are aligned with your own vision, if possible. Correct. Right? Yep. I would love to kind of go back to influence and customers at Refinery. 
you know, you were starting something before Twitter was invented. So social media was a thing, but it wasn't like as much a thing. Um, how much were you beholden to basically the masses? And, and how did that change over the years? I think what was really exciting about that time, this was also the dawn of street style, which was a very, it was a really exciting moment. And I remember Rebecca in particular did a runway show like on like Wooster Street or Green Street. Street. It was Green Street. It was a celebration of everything that was happening right now about people like locals just kind of coming together with designers and influencers. It was a really interesting moment. And we did this infographic about the sartorialist, which I don't know if the audience knows, but he was really the very first street style photographer, one of the first. But he had an eye in a way of like people that he chose. And we did this infographic about how to get photographed by the sartorialist. And it was very funny. It was like, you know, cuff your pants. And it was just like certain (laughs) details that we'd picked up, you know, having really like, you know, followed him um, very enthusiastically. It wasn't making fun of it at all. It was really a celebration of this form that he'd created. And that like blew up before like things, we didn't know that things could blow up. And it was like, you know, when you see like the spikes in traffic, you start to replicate that and it does become an addiction and you start to constantly look for those moments. And it's all about, you know, somebody in my role is like balancing the expectations around like not everything is going to be, you know, that, you know, those come along and we're excited and we love them when we do try to learn from them what made them work and the timing of everything. But a lot of it is like not easy to turn into a formula. However, can I say one quick thing about control and sort of like being a control freak myself, you know, having my, having (laughs) been told yesterday that I was. (laughs) By all um, means. What if we said no right now? Like how would that affect your control freak nature? She would take control. I've learned so much. I've grown. I just remember that There were moments when I inserted myself and it was disruptive and it was destabilizing to people. And then there were moments when I was able to read the room and see where was the most constructive place where I could insert myself, where people felt like they still had ownership, but I was also being a supportive, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. role, uh, force in that process. Even though I knew that I was going to be able to bring some very critical perspective and contrast to that thinking. So we were really stepping back and seeing like the biggest and the best program we could make, but... That's one thing that I feel is so valuable now is to know, I wouldn't call it being a control freak like you had mentioned earlier. It's like a really negative way of, or micromanaging. It's a really negative way of labeling involvement from leadership because it can be really constructive and we want people to learn. I mean, I think that, you know, when I was an editor at Gourmet, and I'm sure you were, were you micromanaged? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. of course. It was rigorous. You know, there was a rigor that was expected about like line by line by line. It was like not. Right. But you learned. You learned. You had to, it was like, it was a vocation that you mm-hmm. were like really developing for. But y- you look at the best athletes, the best dancers, right? They are micromanaged and fine-tuned into these beautiful machines, right? So I think in the beginning, you don't know everything and you do need that management and it shouldn't be micromanaging. It's learning, it's, you know, molding into, into most times being the best. I agree. And, you know, I think changing generations have made that a more difficult thing to swallow. I would say for my part, my control freak nature is actually 
that I just have to do a better job of communicating to my team why the decisions I'm making are the decisions I'm making or why I'm urging them to a place. And it's not just because of a thing cooked up in my head. It's because as we talked about earlier, there's a person in the company who has the ability to have the perspective that people elsewhere in the company don't have. I get to talk to our, our audience in a way our reporters don't. And so it's still on us to figure out the way to communicate with people in a way that makes that control palatable, I guess. The learning piece is so important. There is imparting, you know, it's a responsibility to impart that wisdom. You know, it sometimes gets lost, but it needs to be there. Yeah, but nobody, like Rebecca said earlier, nobody's going to care about it as much as you do. So you can micromanage to an extent, I imagine, but at some point, it's only your baby. Um, speaking of babies, I remember I was on the subway recently, and I, of course, the always the business reporter had this moment of seeing this woman on the subway holding her very large child on her lap. And, you know, the kid must have been like seven or eight. And I was, of course, it was endearing. But at the same time, I was like, at what point, obviously, you want to hold your baby, and the business is kind of like your baby. But at what point do you put the child on the seat, or do they stand? You know, at some point, you kind of have to, like, pull back a little bit. And I love this question of um, sort of like looking at you, Rebecca, right now, um, 2022, you sold the company. Clearly, you're still involved in the business. Are you okay with pulling back? The biggest pullback occurred in 2018. Again, I went on that mat leave. But at that time, we also said, okay, she has 18 direct reports. But I also have to be at public appearances. I have to be the face of social. Like, how can I be a designer 60 hours a week and do all that? It was impossible. And so we said, okay, let's collapse it. Let's hire a creative director. Let's have 18 people report to that one person, and I just have one. And so I went through this, who am I if I didn't say this is the Pantone color? Who am I if I didn't design, if I can't get complete credit for it? Can I call myself a designer? So once I got through that sort of five months of who am I, I was incredibly relieved that I could put my head above water, still be creative, still have my hand in design, launch Female Founder Collective, launch my podcast. But it comes down to who then you are hiring to surround you and who you can trust. So we were fortunate enough to hire a new president who is incredible and leads not only the business but the merchant side. And I have complete trust in her. And I can let that piece go in terms of is she making the right decisions because I see the results. You know, I think we hired a creative director that I can put complete trust in her and her having the right point of view. And so you won't always find those people right away. And it's, and it's, you have to go through a lot of hell to like find those diamonds. But then when you have them, it lets you detach better. Now my head of partnerships and PR, complete trust. Um, but there are less and less of them, I find. And so trying to hold on to them and make sure that they now have a stake in the ground. They have equity. They have reasons to get up every day and put their heart into it and treat it like it's theirs. What was happening in 2018 that made you kind of think about pulling back? I was trying to find the hits. I was only chasing hits. And I was failing because it's, my focus was, what's the next crossbody? We got to find it. Ugh. And like, what's the next big thing that's going to spike our business? And that was the only thing I, I was consumed by it. And I couldn't figure it out. I found that replicating what I had done before didn't work. So then you're just sort of grasping at straws. And I just said, you know what? I need a fucking break. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me go get my head right and go have this baby and focus on some time with him and then come back and see if I'm refreshed. Right. 
And then, Christine, in your in your world, sort of where we are now with Vice Media Group having purchased Refinery in 2019, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, so Vice recently filed for bankruptcy protection. As you're looking at what's happening with that company, them having acquired your baby, basically, what's the feeling that you're having? Can you really say how you feel? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can really say how I feel. It changes a lot. I have a lot of anxiety about it. Again, no regrets. You can't predict these things. You know, it really was the best decision at that moment when, and also I had just had a baby and we started the negotiations, you know, with a few different organizations about acquiring refinery at that time. And I was still on maternity leave when we started those um, conversations. And that isn't necessarily a factor, but there was a feeling of relief that there would be less responsibility and we would have more support and we could grow in a way that maybe we felt restricted by, you know, being on our own. But as co-founders, you know, we made that decision unanimously and it was a point to really come together and decide what was best for the brand and to give it the longest, you know, sort of runway possible. In some ways, your timing was kind of perfect. The pandemic hit and that was just cataclysmic for so many different industries, Rebecca, especially yours. Well, the supply chain crisis was very awful. (laughs) You're you're smiling. What happens when you lose control, but it's not even in your control to begin with? So COVID was incredibly hard in that our business shrunk by 70% overnight. There was a ton of silver linings in that we focused on our own e-com. We really got back and closer with our customer, having no wholesale partners for a period of time. So end of 20... 20 and into 2021, we were getting quite cocky. We were like, oh, we know what we're doing. We're, you know, we're turning a corner. And then end of 2021, our supply chain, you know, we got 3,000 of 300,000 units. The factories were letting 200 workers in, not 3,000. And you couldn't get goods. And then you can't ship. And then you can't, your cash flow literally evaporates. And your bank only wants to take you so far. And it got really, scary like and, we and you had contracts right so so it's not like the scarcity could be taken advantage of in increased prices right, because you pricing. had you had buyers who had contracted at a certain dollar amount i presume i mean we had wholesale partners that were like yeah we feel for you but like we're if you can't ship us like we're going to just put those dollars to another designer you know and so for us it was really faced with is this it and we started looking for a strategic partner who had the muscle and the production arm to be able to get us into new factories and get us, literally they sent a plane to go get products so that we didn't have to, you know, spend the money to air everything and rush it in at a huge loss. And so I think for us, that was the moment where you were like, okay, this is completely out of our control. And we now need the muscle and the might. And that was the partner that we sold to was someone who could do that. So your hand was kind of forced at that point, but it sounds like it was it worked out. Our hand was definitely forced. It did work out. There are goods and bads to all sides of selling mm-hmm. a company. Were we ready? No. And had that supply chain not broken down, what we were seeing happen was so exciting. And we lost six months of momentum because of that. So what is the answer here? Like there actually is no control and it's all just an illusion <laughs> founders <laughs> tell themselves? I would think the takeaway is more of like, you have to exert control as much as possible in the early stages. And then little by little, you start to trust more and more people that are savvy enough to help you along the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I think that every company has these peaks and valleys. You have to be, it's like an organism, you know, a living thing that you have to really like give reverence to and know that you do have some control over, over some things and other things are completely external and you just have to kind of like adapt to them. But I think the thing that is really challenging is like when you do sell or leave your company after you've, you know, it's been almost two decades, it's like the sort of redefining of who you are and, you know, your belief system and, you know, everybody sort of like hopes for that Pentagon clap out where everybody that you've ever worked with like shows up and they're like, Woo! you know, and it's just like, and you're like, yeah, you know, you're having your sort of like whole victory, you know, walk and it's not always like that, you know, and I think that you can be nostalgic about it and you can be pissed and you can be grateful and it's like all the things, but I think that a company does at a certain point, it takes on a life of its own and it's up to you and whatever your goals are to figure out what role you're going to play in that. I think the only person I've seen celebrate it in such a magical way is Sarah Blakely. Mm. You know, when she celebrated it and she gave the 10,000 to all the women and took them on vacation, like that was a good clap out. You know, you know, Stacy from Stacy's Pita Chips, she bought a castle. Wow. I agree with Christine. And I feel like it's, you know, knowing when you can let go and what you're letting go of. And it comes at different times and it ebbs and flows. And then sometimes you're right back in it depending on who you lose on the team. I never, will never forget the first person that resigned. Like, I was like, but we're family. I'm building my family. And she was like, no, I'm going to go get another job. So I think it's knowing that you can relinquish control to a certain point when you find, again, those trusted people that believe in the mission and want to build it with you and have the capability to, and then you're right back in there sometimes if, if that changes. You can reach a certain point where your control is too much. I have a friend who has a newsletter and a magazine and a podcast, and she told me she sometimes listens to the podcast that she just recorded twice and tells her editor exact notes on all the things to change. And I was like, you listened to it twice? You are wasting a lot of your time, sister. Like, I record it, and I and I fully expect my editor to know what to do and take out the pieces, And right? I don't go back and listen to it again. So it's just like, what could she be doing with that time to grow her business versus not relinquishing that control? Scott's looking at me because we're we're both we we're both, both like have we listen to the podcast. To the, we don't <laughs> listen. I, like the man behind the door is responsible for exactly. That. No, but we're. I mean, I fully intend to. I remember Michael Dubin, a Dollar Shave Club, yes. talking about how he sold his business in the middle. Was it was it the during the pandemic yeah. or was he alone? To like Unilever or something, to, right? To yeah. Unilever, but he was alone. And he was sitting in bed with his laptop and he signed the documents for this billion dollar deal and then just closed the laptop <laughs> <laughs> and, and rolled He's over like, and went to sleep. There was, yeah. there was none of that moment that we all expect, right? Yeah, I think it was 2020. So the last question I wanted to ask is just sort of like in the um, ethos of Inc., you know, what's the advice that you would give other founders? You know, like, what would you tell them to never give up control of? I think, you know, sort of reflecting on, especially post-pandemic and now, obviously, there's like so much, you know, serious stuff happening in the world with war and, you know, dealing with all of our feelings and the safety of people that we love. It does feel kind of superficial thinking about like the celebrity of brands, but I also think that beautiful 
brands that are where the timing is right and they're they're helping to make people's lives easier and they're connecting people in a in a way that feels authentic and constructive it's like believing in the magic of those brands and also believing that there is a right time and a right place and a right sort of like co-founder structure that works and there are people that will support it and also really just like taking in the hype, you know, of business sort of celebrity speak and just like keeping it at arm's length because a lot of that stuff is really generated to make it sexy and parts of it are sexy, but there are so many parts of it that are not sexy and you have to really like bring them together and just like be okay with it. Yeah, there's a lot of drudgery involved in the business. A lot of drudgery. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot of going to the post office yourself, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rebecca, what would you tell people? I think if you founded a company, you started with a gut feeling of something that needed to exist and be. And while you can augment that purpose and add to it, don't ever lose sight of what that original impetus was. And I think some people can try and get on every bandwagon or be something to everybody and that original purpose is the reason why you exist. And it's why people are going to come to you and you're special. And so make sure that that doesn't get diluted. I think the ultimate answer is that you do what you can do. You push as hard as you can push. But know at a certain point, like everything in life, we don't have control to the very end. And you have to be okay with that at some point. Well, on that note, thank you all so much for coming and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Inc. Uncensored. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Also, if you liked this episode or have suggestions of what topics you'd like to hear about, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or reach out to us on Inc.'s social channels on LinkedIn, Instagram, and the app formerly known as Twitter. Ink Uncensored is produced by Julia Shu, Blake Odom, and Avery Miles. Mix and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Josh Christensen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>